Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 344. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We are playing part one of Octavia Cade's Trading Rosemary. Next week, we'll play part two. It is just a huge story, and we played the Brandon Sanderson one a few weeks ago, which was a huge one, but I thought it'd be nice to just kind of split this one into two and just to, you know, put it over two weeks. So that's what we're doing this week. First up, though, it is the beginning of the month, and that means new art for Starship Sova. Check out this week's art, or this month's art, by Juan Ochoa. Wow, man, it's just fantastic. Juan came over a couple of months ago and said, oh, I'd be up for kind of actually, you know, doing a commissioned work for Starship Sova. And, you know, by all means, I was like, oh, yes, yes, yes. I checked his site. I was like, oh, that will do for me. And over the kind of weeks and months that Juan's been putting this together, and just fantastic, do you know what I mean? So big congratulations, Juan, for, for doing this. I'll give you the facts on Juan Ochoa. He is a straight-dealing, smooth-line, grit-teeth artist, twain-split, mirror-master, magician, Karasua, Kavota, and noted wizard, with knowledge bilingual, exotic, esoteric, who theoretically does most of his thinking in Espanol. <laughs> That's for a bio. <laughs> and that's what I got off Juan. Oh, that's just fantastic. So check out Juan's work there. It is just fantastic. You know what I mean? It's just lovely. Juan, thank you so much for this. Now, I mentioned as well, yes, that's that time. I've been you know, holding off for a, a few weeks. We're going to do a month now of Rally Cry to get some funds in the Starship Sova's account there. Get the covers built up again because it's... It was lovely, and it actually wasn't lovely when we kind of nearly crashed and burned, but, you know, the, the support we got. But there's a lot of them kind of people now, and it's just, I guess, through no fault of their own. You know, the credit card expires and just hasn't been renewed or anything like that. So now we're kind of bounce, bouncing along, you know, where it's, oh, here we go again, here we go again. So I thought, oh, well, in, you know, in a few months' time when I kind of realised, I thought I'll put together a little kind of... Hopefully, you know, uh, somewhere to kind of we can get some funds together again. Just keep it going, you know, keep it going for another year would be fantastic. So if you want to support, you know what I mean, I'm asking you to, you know, come on, help support Starship Sova. Monthly donations, you know what I mean, that's the, you know, this week we're going to kind of concentrate on monthly donations. Just as simple as, you know, like £2.50, a fiver a month, it's automatically, you know, it's come to the front of the website and just sign up and just, you know, make you feel good. Do you know what I mean? We're getting, you're getting all this stuff for free. You know, all the writers are giving it for free there. You know, I'm not bothered about my time. You know, I love doing it. But, you know, the narrators are doing it all for free. And it's just a little bit payback. You know what I mean? You kind of, you give something forward or whatever you call it. Pay it forward. And it just, 
it gets us on an even keel where I can kind of not even worry about that kind of the side of it. You know, the things are just all kind of taken care of, bills and all that kind of nonsense taken care of. And we're gonna, I can just enjoy putting this show out each week. So it would be lovely. Do you know what I mean? Monthly donations. Think about that. You know, even just like a one-time donation. You know, it's we could really do with it to be quite honest. So it would it would help so much. So let's get into the main fiction. And like I say, it's going to be a two-part show, this, because the, even, you know, part one here is over an hour long, and it was just going to be too big, you know what I mean, to kind of cram it all in there. So the story is Trading Rosemary by Octavia Cade. I'll give you a little bio on Octavia. Octavia Cade is a PhD candidate in science communications at the University of Otango in New Zealand. Her short fiction has appeared in Strange Horizons, Cosmos Magazine and Aurelius, amongst others. Trading Places is her first novella published earlier this year by Mask Books. She can be found at okay.com and I'll put a link on so you can go over there and check it out. And like I say, this is part one of this story. It is narrated by Ruth Stearns. Ruth Stearns got a first start as a narrator by reading to her husband on car trips through the empty grasslands of central Florida. She last read for Starship Sova in episode 295. One of her own written works of weird fiction will appear in stupefying stories sometime soon. Way to go, Ruth. That is a cracking... Oh, I'm chuffed a bit for you. Because stupefying stories, you know, is no mean feat to get in there. That is by Bruce, Bruce Bethke, who is, you know, come on, knowledge caps on there. Who's Bruce? Bruce is the guy who kind of coined the term cyberpunks. You know what I mean? Got his own magazine going there. So way to go, Ruth. That is one little kind of achievement done. You can, you can get in touch with Ruth if you want to at a blog at letmewritethat.wordpress.com. So way to go, Ruth. So the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Trading Rosemary by Octavia Cade. Beginning. Among those who could accurately judge such things, it was generally acknowledged that Rosemary's library was the finest of its kind in the entire archipelago. Begun by her great-grandfather, it had passed down through her family, with each generation adding to the collection, at considerable personal expense. She had contributed many exquisite pieces herself, and introduced order and organization into what had been a fine mess. Each coin was now carefully preserved, and suitably labeled according to its age, provenance, and properties. They were boxed in slim rectangular cases with burnished leather covers, and arranged according to catalogues so that if one particular coin was required, it could then be easily plucked from among its thousands of companions without hesitation or mishap. Rosemary was in the middle of such a plucking, one of her most hated chores. She deeply regretted having to part with several of her choicest specimens, but it couldn't be helped. An extreme rarity had come to market, the sole example of its kind— Such a coin would be the crowning glory of any collection, but it would not come cheap. To obtain it, Rosemary was prepared to sacrifice some of the lesser pieces. Her family's library didn't maintain preeminence by their conservative husbanding of coins, and Rosemary had been raised to take advantage of the market whenever a chance came her way. Rarity will out, her mother had said before returning to her history books. You should know what is available, and make sure that you get it before anyone else. There was only one more coin to call. Stooping to one of the lower shelves, she slid the coin from its resting place to take her last farewell. It was a polished marble disc, 
pale with green and rose veins, and chill under her fingers even in the ambient temperature of the library. Smoothing over the surface with her thumb, Rosemary cupped it to her nose, closed her eyes, and breathed in deeply. The smell of the coin coiled through her. The salty tang of the sea cut with the hard, dry overtone of a sheer expanse of ice, glittering green in enormous, chunky sheets. She remembered the last great southern iceberg, and how it felt to jump from a lower slope into the numbing water, a crazy swim one sunset. The shock of cold sliced through her, brisk and merry. Icebergs were now a thing of the past, and the memory of a cold climate was seductive in the unending humidity of the archipelago. Luckily, a master coincaster had managed, before the damage to his aging mind became too great, to record some of his memories of what once was onto a series of marble discs, and thus the experience was not wholly lost. One memory from the discs was assigned to each coin, and Rosemary had tasted seven of the coincaster's eleven, more than any one of her acquaintance. The heat gave her hives, and she was loath to give this memory away. It was a better remedy than cool springs that warmed quickly in the blistering sun. It was a complex scent, and Rosemary's favorite. She would miss it. It will soon be lost to me, thought Rosemary, depressed, but unable to contain a twinge of excitement nonetheless at the thought of her new acquisition. She was confident she could eventually replace the iceberg coin with another of the series. Rosemary kept a close eye on the other prominent librarians, and two of those coins would soon be on the market. Their owner was aging, with no children and a decided aversion toward having them. Rosemary knew he was planning to donate some of his collection, but assiduous attention on her part had ensured that before this happened, the estate would give her the option to buy the iceberg coins. They would not be exactly the same, of course, but similar enough— She would have her replacement within the decade, although she did not look forward to spending so much time without her favorite. Reluctantly, she slipped the coin and its case into the cover and stacked it with the rest. She would miss it, yes, but the family holdings would improve. She imagined the gratitude of her grandchildren with satisfaction. From the library's large desk, she extracted an amount of common currency, containing cents so familiar that they had small value and were used in everyday transactions. It was an hour until she could pick up the sapflower coin, and there were errands to run in the meantime. Rosemary headed for the nearest market and wended her way through the colorful stalls. She stopped first at the bakery, presided over by a fat, lively man who had run the bread stall for decades. When she had been a child, he had sneaked her warm twists of sugar pastry when her mother's eyes were elsewhere. Rosemary ordered a large basket of goods and arranged for the baker's apprentice to deliver it to her house that morning. Fumbling in her pouch, she caught up a warm handful of wooden orange coins. Passing them over, she caught their scent, citric and sharp. A barrage of memories flickered through her, fleetingly becoming her own, giving her the specific memories of the original casters. They were hopelessly common a little boy coaxing a long worm of peel, an old woman pressing cloves into a bright, fat globe, several pressings of juice, an orchard of moments in other lives, momentarily hers. Casting any coin using commercial recorders disrupted the originator's own memory, removing the specific experience from the mind of its previous owner, so common currency always consisted of memories held in abundance, experiences that could be replaced on a regular basis. 
Even so, there were often subtle differences according to the taste and familiarity of the caster. Oranges were popular fruit, but few who did not own orchards would try to cast their memories of them. The standards were best maintained in such ways. Next was the potter, as Rosemary needed to replace a platter that had been recently, and carelessly, broken during an argument with her daughter when a slamming door had knocked it off its shelf. A range of crockery was on display, and among the three largest plates Rosemary found one that suited her tastes. It was a plain design, simple and strong, but with a vivid, expensive-looking glaze that reminded her of the sea. She handed over a single sandalwood coin, worn thin and shiny from repeated handling. It had a sweet, redolent sense, and around the edge were tiny, intricate carvings faded with age. For a moment she was the artist, working callous-fingered long ago, breathing in the woodwork. As the coin passed from her, so did the memory. The potter raised the coin to his own nose and smiled gratefully at her. The artist in him appreciated it, and Rosemary often kept such coins to trade with him. He tossed her change to her gracefully, a small wedge of applewood. It was of so little value that it could not even be exchanged for a real apple, but the potter was always scrupulous about making sure his customers were not cheated. The coin recollected a cottage, wafting with new-baked apple pie, spiced with cinnamon and nutmeg. Little pastry apples had been pressed into the pie crust, glazed with apple brandy and egg. Rosemary had always had a secret liking for the apple coins. She padded swiftly through the dusty streets, and was but a few moments from her appointment when a weaver's shop caught her eye. A beautifully tinted rug draped over one side of the stall. She stepped close, fingered the carpet. The craftsmanship was exquisite, and the rug would look perfect in her entrance hall. Rosemary noticed the weaver peering smarmily at her and grimaced. He was a middle-aged man with a reputation people whispered about behind their hands. If the rug had not been on display, she would have skirted him and not even considered going into the shop to look at his wares. The island had other weavers, and she tended to frequent those by preference. But none of them had just the right carpet for her hall. Rosemary considered, even though there were only a few moments until her appointment, she could finish the transaction in that time. The weaver had a reputation of asking more than was acceptable. There was a coin in her pouch, however, that she thought would satisfy him. It was baked clay, earthy and rich, smelling of sex with a hint of blood acting as an insistent counterpoint. Rosemary had heard of the weaver and his predilection for young girls. She also knew, given his nature, he was rarely able to satisfy himself upon them, for no decent girl could be persuaded to go near him. The gleam in his eye when he lowered the coin from his nose told her that her guess had not been incorrect, and the fading memory of the coin ran like water from her mind, leaving a faint odor of distaste. Although the memory was gone, an abstract knowledge of the coin's contents remained with those who had handled them, this allowed for ease of trade without sharing the memory into worthlessness. The weaver promised to send the rug to her house that very day, and even gave her some coins and change. She suspected he was trying to sweeten her into coming back, in the hope that she, who was, after all, a known coin dealer, would eventually bring him more of the same. Rosemary noted that one of his coins bore the weaver's own mark. It was clumsily made, but sufficient to be legal tender. She sniffed it gingerly, and found to her surprise that it was not entirely unpleasant. Musty Hessian, 
shot through with cool silk and the feel of fiber under her fingers. Inside the agent's office, she drank cool, sweet tea and rested while her new acquisition was being fetched. When the sap flower coin was brought to her, she was prepared to offer the promised payment. They had spent months haggling over the price and had settled on nine specific coins, each valuable in their own right. Rosemary handed them over one at a time. She hesitated a little over the iceberg coin, and also over the last, a heavy ebony coin, coffinwood. She had made it herself at fourteen, under strict instruction from masters of the craft. It was her own memory, this one, that of her grandmother's funeral. The old woman had been a famous composer. She had written her own requiem, instructed only a single performance of it, but as the funeral was private, public curiosity had been intense. Rosemary had thought long and hard about selling this coin. She did not often trade in her own memories, preferring to keep them herself, even in the more limited coin form, but had been overcome by a singular opportunity. She handed it over and received the sapflower coin in return. Tactfully, the agent left her alone so she could examine the coin at her leisure. She opened the box, slid the coin from its resting place. It was slippery smooth to the touch, with no trace of etching on the surface. She lifted it to her face, and the scent was of spice honey and granite. She saw the sap flower, only recently discovered on a distant Antarctic mountain, its habitat destroyed by volcanic eruption. It exuded moisture, beaded itself with it so that in the moonlight, the sap flower was nocturnal. The flower was limbed in liquid silver. It was exquisite. She saw the plant coaxed from the soil, saw her hands lifting and crushing it, aware that only one of its kind was ever to be found, and that it could not be bred alone. Instant destruction had ensured a memory of the highest value, the same awareness that had come to Rosemary, standing over a fire and holding her grandmother's last work before burning it to ashes. The agent returned to the room to inquire if the coin was satisfactory. Rosemary smiled radiantly at him. Truly, she said, truly it is the rarest that is the most beautiful. She did not regret having destroyed her grandmother's work, stripping her own memories, any more than the creator of the sap flower coin regretted depriving others of its experience. It was the price of being a serious collector. Chapter 2 Boneyard Rosemary's daughter Ruth was less impressed with her mother's decision, but then Rosemary's decisions rarely impressed her. You might have thought of me, she shouted, before slamming the door behind her, escaping into what Rosemary thought of as the boneyard, a dusty room that opened out onto the stables, and a small courtyard for saddling and grooming, Ruth's private domain, and one that Rosemary avoided if at all possible. She disliked the smell of horses and their rolling eyes and skittish ways. If Rosemary could trample a human with deadly hooves, she certainly wouldn't prance nervously about them in that obscene way. Perhaps Ruth makes them nervous, thought Rosemary, and not for the first time. She certainly made her mother want to kick, an autonomic response, the same reaction she had when she dreamed of a certain vicious carnivorous freshwater fish. When Rosemary dreamed of sharks, she held herself still and ready, watched them circle, showed them her face, and hid out when they came too close. 
I see you, she said to them, her jaw set narrow and hard. I know that you're watching me, watching with your sandpaper skin and opportune eyes. I know you're waiting for me to look away. With sharks, she was awake, even in sleep. But Pike, with their numerous sharp teeth and bony jaws ever ready as they slunk about bottom-feeding, wanting to nip at her heels, she would kick, knowing even in her sleep that there was no need but unable to help herself, feet drumming on the wall at the side of her bed, kicking scaly flanks and angular jaws, and drumming in the ribs of her Piscine child. And Ruth kicked back, bit back as she knew how, a pike to the end, large-jawed, capable of holding and dragging, an endless weight that floated empty-eyed beneath her. Her daughter, the pike. She would not let go, and Rosemary's heels could make no difference to her jaws. Yet she had birthed that pike, could not gainsay its growing, dominating the pond into which she had gushed, scale-slippery from her mother's body. Rosemary knew Pike and loathed them. She was careful to retain these memories, not try to sell them to those fish dreamers who would have taken them, those who spent their lives swimming, or those who wanted to but could not. Who would want to be a fish? But she had given birth to one, and so had to deal with her. The knowledge was useful to her, and better gained from permanent imprinting than from goldfish bowls placed around the house, tanks in the kitchen, and indoor pools of pike in the parlor. At least that way the house did not stink of fish. You had to be cunning with pike. Rosemary entered the boneyard, kept her shoulders back, expression open, and tried not to look as if she was taking shallow breaths. She was. I didn't know you had become so interested in music. She began, trying to make a connection. Must encourage the girl. When did this start? I've been interested for ages, said Ruth, her upper lip twisting in well-contrived contempt. As you'd know if you paid any attention, she continued, her voice rising. Rosemary resisted the urge to roll her eyes. I paid attention when paying for a piano teacher for you, she said. Then the violin, then the clarinet— each lasted three weeks, as I recall. I paid attention every time when, after only a little while, you said it was boring and you didn't want to do it anymore. You wanted to spend more time with the horses. I learned better on my own anyway, said Ruth, returning to the house through the folding doors to her bedroom. Rosemary was surprised to see a piano had been wedged half-heartedly into a corner. She watched her daughter seat herself at the piano watched her run her fingers over the ivory keys. Even at a distance, Rosemary could see the dust. She wrinkled her nose behind her daughter's back. It probably comes from those bloody animals. They don't stink that badly, cried Ruth bitterly. I can see you, you know. Rosemary hadn't known. You hate everything I like, complained her daughter. I don't, Rosemary protested. Play me something. I promise to like it. If necessary, she would lie. Anything to bridge the gap that had become a chasm between them since Ruth had grown into womanhood. But after hearing her daughter's attempt at an extremely simple tune, Rosemary strongly suspected the horses had more musical ability. She couldn't convincingly admit to liking it, and Ruth pounced triumphantly. I told you! I knew you'd hate it! You've been trying to learn on your own, 
said Rosemary cautiously, and Ruth shrugged, trying to look nonchalant. I might have borrowed some things from the library, she said, and her tone dared her mother to make something of it. Rosemary couldn't help herself. You actually used the library? For something other than horses? Why, Ruth, that's wonderful. I should have known that's all you'd care about, Ruth exploded. That bloody library! Not Granny, not me. Get out, just get out! You can't expect it to work immediately, said Rosemary, moving towards the door in a state of stunned amazement. The coins will give you the memory of playing, but they won't magically improve coordination or finger movement, you know. You have to practice as well, like you did with the horses. Borrowed memories had been similarly limited when it came to Ruth's horses. They could tell her how to fit a bridle, how to rub down a horse after a ride. They could even remind her how to keep her seat, although it took time for her body to adjust to what her mind remembered. But dealing with a horse as an individual... Each one reacted slightly differently, liked different food, different scratching. To rely on the remembered actions of another horse was foolish, and Ruth had learnt that the hard way, breaking several bones before she could bring herself to remove the condensed memories of one particular horse, a horse she had never seen or touched, a horse that meant more to her than any of the beasts currently inhabiting the stables that Rosemary had built for her. Not that Rosemary disapproved— On the contrary, Ruth's interest in the favored coin horse was at least an indication that the child was not completely insensible. If the coin horse was the better animal, it was completely normal that Ruth should prefer it, and Rosemary would have been irritated if Ruth allowed sentimentality to influence her towards the living alternatives. Admittedly, Rosemary would have liked her daughter to have a more experimental taste— not to spend her life mooching around with one memory hanging on a chain between her breasts, but that was young people for you, willful, spoiled. Had they only been able to afford a mediocre library, Ruth would no doubt be champing like one of her charges to widen her experience. But with one of the finest libraries in the land at her fingertips, she slouched about like a deprived slum child of bygone times. For years, Rosemary hadn't been able to picture the barrenness of her daughter's mental landscape without shuddering. "'I want it back!' Ruth wailed furiously. She actually stamped her foot, then slammed the door in her mother's face. Rosemary was forcibly reminded of her daughter as a small child. Tantrums had always been something Rosemary simply refused to tolerate. And even though she tried to stop it, she could feel her already limited stock of goodwill toward her daughter slipping away. Any capitulation would simply encourage the girl to scream and snap the next time she wanted something. Briefly, Rosemary indulged in the fantasy of screwing a hook through her daughter's upper lip, the one that curled so comprehensively in contempt, and leading her to the garden pond, giving her a good boot in. At least she'd be with her own kind. She was used to her daughter's tendency to settle stolidly into one interest— "'stuck firmly in an adolescence that Rosemary privately believed had gone on for far too long. "'Surely Ruth should have realized long ago that her mother paid no attention to histrionics? "'Unfortunately, it hadn't seemed to stop her. "'Many times Rosemary had idly wished that she could cast every memory of Ruth's tantrums, "'rid herself entirely of those unfortunate experiences.' But no one would take them as trade, and there wasn't room in the house to store them all. Except in the library, and Rosemary was damned if she would sully her treasures, if only by association. 
Later, in the same library, she was forced to reconsider what she had traded away, and the possibility of getting it back. Was it such a silly idea? Granted, Ruth didn't know the value of anything and couldn't be trusted to make an accurate assessment if her life depended on it, which it never would, and Rosemary had not made her initial choices lightly. Her grandmother's coin was a rare piece in a library of polished rarity, but uncommonness alone was not a reliable indicator of worth. Under normal circumstances, Rosemary would not have regretted its loss— Both her and her agent had assessed the market value of the sapflower coin and its ability to hold as an investment, and Rosemary was certain of her conclusion. Trained since she could toddle to maintain and improve her family's most valued asset, Rosemary knew she was an expert in her field, had known since she was younger than Ruth was now that in her ability to discern and trade on that discernment, she was a match for anybody. The sapflower coin was the better memory and was undeniably worth what she had paid for it. She would not give it up, not for her grandmother's coin, and not to placate her daughter. These, however, were not normal circumstances, and the loss not a typical one. Rosemary might be able to give up a family memory without a qualm, but she was not so foolish as to give up the ability to influence her successor. Ruth might not be the best or the brightest, but she was sharp in her own way, grasping, determined. She had learned to ride, adjusted memories to her abilities, and ultimately she was what Rosemary had to work with. An only child, damn her blank fish eyes. Rosemary breathed deeply, willing patience into the set of her shoulders, and tried to picture her retirement. Picture herself handing over responsibility not to a single-minded and memoried idiot, but to a well-rounded person who could be trusted to carry on the work of her ancestors. At heart, Rosemary was a businesswoman, a woman who knew an opportunity for a good bribe when she saw one. She leafed through the cases of a far shelf, locating one bound in blue leather. Rosemary took it to the boneyard and held it out to her daughter. "'Tell you what,' she said." You want your grandmother's requiem? This is Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, the first recorded musical memory of our time. It's not the most difficult piece I could have chosen, but you'll have to work to learn it. When you can, if you can, I'll see about getting your grandmother's coin back. Ruth gazed at her speculatively, then uncovered the coin and threaded it carefully onto her necklace. Holding it against her breast, left hand curled over the outer surface, her eyelids half-closed began to flutter, and with her right hand she began to slowly pick out notes. Rosemary watched her with some surprise, a hopeful stirring of pleasure. Ten minutes later she raided the petty cash and tied on her hat for a trip back into town. Ruth might be determined, but she was also, if the thumping from the direction of bedroom and boneyard was anything to go by— Outrageously short on talent, Rosemary was going to need earplugs. Chapter 3 Bargain The bulk of Rangitoto loomed over them from the window, the perfect curve of the shield volcano sweeping up through Pudukawa's and old lava fields, cracked and black in the sun. Rosemary could hear the birds, the kakarikis and the saddlebacks calling to each other in bright flashes. Behind him, soft lights and muted sounds and needles sketching jagged patterns of footsteps. It's only for show, said Netro of the last. Old technology. I like to keep it around to demonstrate how far the field has come. And so no one can sneak up on you, 
said Rosemary. But he had cameras for that, set over the front door and not too carefully hidden about the house. I prefer my guests to know that they're being watched, he had said, when he had seen her noting their presence. Netro had not been what she had expected. Her coins, including her grandmother's, had sold expensively. They were collector's pieces that few could afford unless they were in the business of curation, as Rosemary was. Netro clearly was not. She had seen his library, and it was significantly smaller than her own, on a par with what was to be expected from those with a moderately high income, and no professional interest at all. During the negotiations for the sapflower coin, he had specifically requested her grandmother's requiem, which indicated a special and specific interest, and yet he did not seem to care for music. There were no instruments in the house that she had seen, no players or speakers or visible recordings. Instead, rocks and computers and pickaxes, heavy boots by the door, dust and little hammers and polishing cloths. Certainly a focused collection, but it was unusual for someone to amass coins of a particular type and not have the interest, the same subject matter, apparent in their surroundings. Rosemary could see the man in front of her with a specialized collection of coin geology, but not of music. She looked again, more carefully, studying the artwork on the walls for clues. There were none, just photographs of volcanoes, professionally done and, well, if simply, framed. Rosemary recognized some of them. Ngaruhoe, White Island, Tambora, Krakatau. Have you been to any of them? Netro asked, noting her interest. I went to White Island when I was a child, said Rosemary. In person, I mean. We visited some of the others by coin. Vesuvius, I remember, as part of a history module at school. Education was often done by imprinting, with specialized recorders able to insert prominent memories, unlike currencies that were fleeting experiences only. But my grandmother was composing an operetta on the Tarawara eruption and wanted to see an active volcano. She took me along with her. The boat ride towards the island, how she had run along the deck, short legs pumping as the boat thumped through heavy seas, squealing with delight as the deck fell out from under her. Her grandmother had stood in the bow of the boat, her face towards the volcano and her eyes closed. I want to listen to the island, she said when Rosemary asked her. I want to hear it coming closer to me. And you kept the memory, said Netro. Of course, said Rosemary. I didn't purge her from my mind, if that's what you're implying. We had a very good relationship. I was closer to her than I was to my parents, to be honest. Yet you sold me one of the defining moments of her life, said Netro. It wasn't her life, said Rosemary, frowning. It was mine. She was dead. While she might have planned her funeral, she didn't live it. I did. Yet it didn't matter enough for you to keep it, said Netro, even though you say you loved her. I loved her, said Rosemary. Her. Not the shell of what she left behind. Not her things. Not her music. You didn't like her music, Netro questioned. She wasn't called the finest composer of the last century for nothing. Called by her peers, certainly, said Rosemary. But you know as well as I do that the general population found her music too difficult. Oh, they were fond of her, certainly, and her early works especially. But the later pieces, you didn't like them. If you must know, I didn't, said Rosemary. I found them a little too ponderous, 
and a little too depressing. I've always preferred the lighter pieces. She said I had music hall taste. But you like what you like, and my grandmother's later work. Gave you a headache, said Netra. Let's just say I can admire the craftsmanship, if not the finished product, said Rosemary. And now you want it back. A voice like a scalpel, probing for weakness. Predatory in its way, Rosemary felt, although she could not yet justify characterizing it as such simply from tone and timber. That level of dissection was beyond her. Hard hats and gas masks. Rosemary had never held either of these in small hands before. The hat she chose was yellow, the child-sized versions available in a range of bright colors. She practiced with the gas mask, putting on the smell of plastic and rubber and glass, getting used to the weight on her face when she strapped it on, the way it made her feel as if she was falling forward, as if gravity had shifted slightly about her. I have more use for it now than I did before, admitted Rosemary. I wasn't aware that music was a particularly useful thing, said Netro. Rosemary snorted. Everything's useful if someone else thinks it is, if someone else wants it. If someone else wants it, Netro repeated. It's a question of desire, then. I want it. You want it back. What will you give me for it? I will, of course, return the sapflower coin in exchange, said Rosemary. Yes, yes, Netra interrupted dismissively. But what else? There's a question of inconvenience, you see. I understand, said Rosemary. I do not ask for the return of all the coins I gave you. You could keep the rest as profit. Useful, as I've already spent them, Netra observed. But what if I, too, wanted them back? What would happen then? Sulfur crystals, yellow and white and furry like moss. Fumaroles boiling and twisting. Steam bubbling up and the air moist and humid around them. The tiny edge of pressure against her chest with the wet air and the heat and the smell. And how it felt to breathe it all in. And, Nana, it's like being on another planet. Rosemary looked at him in amusement. Are you going to tell me that the desire to keep hold of what you have will lead to the ruin of society? She said. Because, charming as that view may be, it won't change my mind. I'm not trying to change your mind, said Netro. I'm trying to tell you my price. You traded me nine coins for the sapflower. I have kept one, your grandmother's, and traded the rest to other collectors. I can tell you where they went, and I'd like for you to get them back. I'd say you shouldn't have sold them if you wanted to keep them, but I fear that would be hypocritical, said Rosemary. But... If I may ask, why do you want them back? I don't have any daughters that need bribing, true, said Netro. And I don't particularly want them back. It's what you're going to do to get them that I want. And what would that be, said Rosemary levelly. Understand, I may choose not to do it. Then you won't get what you want, said Netro. This is my only offer. I'm not open to further negotiation. You are the one that wants something from me. It's a question of desire, you see. You have it. So do I, of course. But yours is more pressing. What I want, he continued, is for you to trade your own memories, single copies, you won't retain the originals, for those eight coins. Trade the coins you make for them, not the coins you have. And when you return with those eight, you will add a ninth, the single experience of your journey. 
That is the coin I really want. Rosemary looked at him silently, for long moments, then looked at the rest of the room, looked at the photographs and cameras and instruments, the mechanisms and lenses and outputs of sight, and then she smiled very softly. And now I know what you want, she said. The remnants of mines from a time when sulfur was dug out of the steaming earth, stone buildings, their cobbled walls crumbled, were open to the sky and giant wooden beams, their surfaces corrugated and corroded with salt, lay as if carelessly thrown. But what Rosemary liked best was the giant cogs, some fallen flat on the ground and some still suspended, or balanced upright like giant mirrors with the glass smashed out. The teeth were orange iron, rusty and rough, blunted by the elements and the iron's own decay. Rosemary pressed her palms over them, scratching her skin and turning it orange. Yes, said Netro. I like to watch. That is my desire. Do you think that your knowing this puts me at a disadvantage? I think that is what you would like me to think, said Rosemary. I think I would like to tell you a story, said Netro. Carefully, he poured Rosemary a cup of now-cool tea that had been steeping as they talked. The porcelain of the cups was translucently fine. Some years ago, not long after I'd left school, I was out in the field monitoring a volcano that was somewhat intermittently active. I was part of a small team at the field station, and on that team was another young doctor. She wasn't beautiful, not really, but her back had a lovely smooth curve to it, and I liked to look at her. She didn't realize how much until I left a recording of what I could see on her bed. I imagine she was just thrilled with you, said Rosemary. She never knew it was me, said Netro. She left not long after. He smiled at Rosemary, a sweet cold leer. That's what I want from you, he said. I want you to do this thing for me. I want you to sell yourself to do it. I want you to know that I'm watching as you do. The walk up to the crater, holding tight to her grandmother's hand, passing giant mounds of earth from a long-ago landslide, passing yellow chimneys of crystals, passing steaming acrid vents and discreet instruments, and peering over the crater walls down into the lake. Just look at that, honey, said Nana, her grip tight and sweaty with excitement. Have you ever seen anything like it? Are you going to tell me I'm a lecher now, said Nutro. Stamp your feet, refuse to work with me. Rosemary took a sip of the cool tea, willing herself not to react. Don't be juvenile, dear, she said in as bored a tone as she could manage, feeling an inward twinge of satisfaction as he stiffened slightly in his chair. I get enough of the amateur dramatics at home. She placed her cup back on the table, a precise, quiet movement. Neither of us are children. And if you think you can manage to shock me, you might consider that there are dusty corners of my library that are significantly more shocking than you can ever hope to manage. I'll admit there is some originality in your approach, but the base desire, such as it is, is a very common one. She gave him a slow once-over, rejoiced internally at the slight coloration of his cheeks. Very common. Too common for you, I take it said Netro, and his tone was sulky. We all deal in commonalities when we must, said Rosemary, including me. 
So, very well, I consent. If she wanted the coin, she had little choice. Can you hear it? said Nana. The way the earth sounds, the hiss and bubble and crunch of it all. The way the sea sounds, the way the wind blows, the sound of the iron and the sulfur and that warm lake. Can you hear the petrels and the gannets and what they're saying to each other? Can you hear what the miners said, Rosemary, and the echoes of the mutton birders? And Rosemary, small and stolid, answering, No, Nana, of course I can't. The miners didn't have coins. Not like us. Poor things. Chapter 4 Araki Three brothers, triplets, and the keepers of the least of the coins that Rosemary was to retrieve. And you want three coins summing to the total of the one you have, she clarified. It was a fair request, and one she was quite happy to accommodate. Three less valuable memories would likely leave her less impoverished than one valuable one, and given that there were three of them, it would be easier to tailor their requests than to try to produce a single expensive coin that they could all agree on. They had told her, chuckling, of how long it had taken them to agree on the coin they had traded off to Netro, and she was not inclined to experience that for herself. Yes, said the youngest, his body twisted and confined in a bright yellow wheelchair. We don't get out much, and those buggers won't share. Bitch, 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 laughed the middle brother, round and jiggling from the sofa. Never happy he is. Give him something to complain about, will ya? I can do that, said Rosemary, smiling. The road up to the bluff was steep and rocky, and Rosemary dawdled her way up, breaking off regularly to look down over the lake. It was the only view she was to have, as by the time she reached the hut at the top of Panakere, fog had rolled in, leaving the air misty and wet and thick with the promise of rain. She made her way down the other side of the bluff, through muddy paths and slippery stream beds of rocks that could turn an ankle. Rosemary slowed, picking her way crouched over, crab-like, with the pack on her back affecting her balance. She was so relieved to have navigated the rocks that when, some ten minutes later, she came to a muddy stretch between tree roots, she did not expect disaster. Rain had washed away the layers of leaves and humus, scouring mud and gouging at the surface of the track, leaving it pockmarked and treacherous. One of Rosemary's boots skidded in the mud, sending her toward the edge of the track. I felt it give way beneath me, she was to say later. It just crumbled and down I went, arse over tip, over the edge of the steep bank, and rolling down the hill until I slammed into a beech tree, and all I remember thinking was, shit, 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 ow! Rosemary had never had a broken bone before, and had never felt the urge to experience one by proxy. Yet the feeling was quite unmistakable, a sick numb throbbing from deep within her arm that quite overshadowed the pains besieging the rest of her scraped and bruised body. She lay in the mud, clutching her arm and sobbing. The track was a steep climb above her, the bare mud of the bank slick-grained and silky and studded with tree roots. Climbing the bank while dragging the pack behind her was a long and painful experience. She had to do it one-handed. Putting the slightest weight on her arm was agony. Shafts of white-hot pain curled her fingers and left them weak and useless. Dizzy, she crawled and clutched, desperate not to fall again not to slide back down the unstable slope. When she reached the top, she was so covered in mud that her clothes were hardly visible. 
Rosemary examined herself and concluded she was so filthy that trembling in the fetal position on the same muddy path she'd fallen off could hardly make her any grubbier. She curled around her arm, found that a firm grip with her other hand around the worst band of pain made it more bearable. Her pack had an emergency beacon, but pride discouraged its use, and Rosemary kept the small yellow mechanism in her pack. A broken arm was an inconvenience, not an emergency. After a while, she managed to stand and began walking again. It took her until the next day to get to the hospital, the hand beneath her broken arm swollen twice the size of normal and cold to the touch. But the cast that was applied was a pretty green, like sunshine on five-fingered pseudopanic sleeves, and whenever Rosemary looked at it, she felt a slight and curious smugness. I like it, said the youngest brother simply. What do you two think of it? Rather you than me, mate, said the middle brother, as the coin was passed between the three of them. I think I'll imprint it permanently, said the youngest brother. Give myself delusions of competence, it will. We could always haul your arse up there in a helicopter, tip your chair over an edge somewhere. So thoughtful, he turned to Rosemary. See how generous my brothers are? Always willing to lend a hand or a foot. I'm sure they'd offer a brain if they had one between them. He's got a penchant for outdoorsy stuff, his brother said. I like it, too, without too much of the inconvenience, understand? I'm more of a marshmallows and ghost stories about the campfire type. Something exciting, but not too much of a strain. That's what I want. I might have something suitable, said Rosemary, from when I was in the Hunua Ranges. Nausea and cramping and vomiting, her mouth filled with stringy saliva and her legs unable to carry her more than a few meters without spasms gripping her from knee to hip. Rosemary had had to drop on all fours more than once. Her knees were filthy, and there was leaf litter under her fingernails, strong black crescents that stood out even in the half-light. Rosemary knew it would be impossible for her to reach the campsite before night fell. The track was too treacherous to navigate in the dark but she found a relatively flat patch just off the path and erected her tent, head spinning. She lay on her stomach, sweat-coating her face, and stared out of the tent up at the green faces of the trees. They'd grown arms and heads, and the two in front pointed down at her, waving for the other trees to come and look. It seemed they were talking to each other, wondering about the small pink unshelled thing that lay at their feet. What is it? said the branch arms to one another. What is it? It occurred to Rosemary, briefly and from a distance, that she might have been sicker than she thought. It was a feeling that skipped across the surface of her fevered brain, for how could she feel anything but small when the trees were walking around her? Sleep came in short bursts, and she woke screaming every time. There was an animal in the tent with her that perched behind her left ear and growled. Rosemary screeched and thrashed and threatened, waiting in creeping horror for the weight of padded feet between her shoulder blades, pinning her to the ground. She tried to convince herself that it was a possum in the forest outside, but could not make herself believe it. Sound might carry between the trees, but the feel of breath on her ear and the echoes in the tent were not those of a possum. As soon as it was light, Rosemary crawled from the tent, from the hard-rooted slope beneath her, from the nightmares and retching and hallucinations. Lucidity had returned, but her throat was dry with thirst and screaming, and the path she staggered along wove before her endlessly, the few short kilometers stretching into the future, 
hours for each one. She was hot, and then too cold to move, and her bright orange thermal blanket covered her like eggshell as she huddled beneath in fetal position and waited for rescue to come. She had never been more grateful than she was to hear the sound of whistles echoing through the hunuas, see the reassuring tramp of help coming towards her. It's a good thing you stayed on the path, they said. Someone got lost here last year, and we looked for a week but never found him. The trees have covered him up, thought Rosemary, tired and dizzy. The monster in the tent got him, and the trees covered his bones, and waving their arms, pointing with mottled mossy fingers and a distant woody curiosity. What is that, they say, the small white trunks all scattered out across the dirt. What is that? And you, said Rosemary to the oldest brother, who was standing quietly behind the others, leaning against a window. What can I do for you? I went camping once, he said meditatively. Those two weren't interested in the real stuff. They wanted me to go and bring back memories for them. Last time I'm doing that, said the youngest. Hay fever and insect bites and blisters? He burned his fingers failing to light a fire and came back halfway through with an absolutely brilliant sunburn. You should have seen him trying to fix his dinner, said the middle brother. It was positively embarrassing to witness. It wasn't like I thought it'd be, the eldest brother admitted. I was hoping for more communion with nature, less being attacked by it. In that case, I think I can help, said Rosemary. The port's water race that channeled through the Longwood Ranges was ridiculously overgrown, and Rosemary cursed it both under her breath and at the top of her lungs. At least for most of the track, the way forward was clear. The race, constructed centuries past for diggers to get sluicing water for the local gold mines, was a large ditch burrowed out of solid rock, and even if clogged in places, the overall direction was obvious. Unfortunately, Rosemary had come to a point where the blockage was so complete, her sense of direction became compromised. There appeared to be a fork in the track, with two possible directions. One way was well-tramped, as if other walkers had gone before. The other, across a river and up a steep bank, had a rag-hung tree that usually signified the correct path, but no evidence of any such route. Just make sure you stick to the track, a local pub owner had told Rosemary the night before. Some of those old mines are not but deep holes in the ground, and all covered up by now with ferns. You fall in, nobody will ever find you. That is, if you don't break your neck on the way down. Uncertain, Rosemary took the former option, on the grounds that if she was wrong, the apparent path meant that other people had been wrong first, and that was always comforting. An hour later, as night was approaching, she was forced to realize that being wrong in company was still being wrong. There was no proof of the channel, and no sign of the conservation hut she had planned to spend the night in. Unwilling to wander in darkness through the deep-dimpled landscape, Rosemary found a fallen tree and built a lean-to against it, cutting fern to weave the shelter from and for bedding. She was not afraid. There was no wildlife that could hurt her, and the weather was mild, with stars pouring over the trees in spider waves. More pork owls cried in the night, and Rosemary could hear them hunting, hear the small rustles and leaf litter the damp, clean-smelling litter of beech leaves and black humus. The next day she was able to navigate her way to the promised hut, through mud that came over her boot tops and sucked at her socks. 
Beside the hut was a small ancient dam. Trees surrounded its pond, potocarp beaches and silver birches. Their branches bent to the water and doubled back in perfect reflection. It was the quietest, most peaceful place Rosemary had ever been. She stayed for two days, seeing no one but birds, the glimmer of fish, and the occasional quiet deer sipping the water. It was as if she was the last person left in the world, and the woods and the water were such that she did not mind. That, said the oldest brother in satisfaction, is perfect. Thank you. Thank you, said Rosemary. Pleasure doing business with you. Why not stay for lunch, said the middle brother. Go on, traveling's hard work. Get a good meal inside you before you set off again. You can tell us about the next walk you're doing. You never know. We might be interested. I don't have anything planned, said Rosemary. But there's a lake back home that might be interesting. Not very strenuous. I'd stay at an inn each night, and there's a boat service that would carry the bags for me. That sounds civilized, said the oldest brother. Yes, said Rosemary. Just my speed. I think I'd enjoy it. Chapter 5 Kaimais Regaining the second coin was as enjoyable. Rosemary's mother had collected more furniture than memories. The coins from her generation of stewardship tended towards craftsmanship and construction, the carpenter's carving of a single sideboard, the potter's throwing of a single set of crockery. For generations there had been a commune of artists in the Waikato Hills who had recorded their experiences and destroyed their creations at the moment of completion. For the most talented of the artists, the coins resulting from their sculptures or paintings or embroidery were worth more than the concrete products themselves. The more accessible experiences could be recorded on multiple discs and would easily find markets among common people. But the most capable artists, the most brilliant creations, had values that skyrocketed with rarity. A single replication not only of the experience of the artist, but the experience of its creation, made the picking up a hammer or the lighting a match worthwhile. When Rosemary visited, there was a large midden at the gate of the commune, an advertisement of the genius residing within, and a warning to passers-by that they needed deep pockets to enter. The midden was a central feature of the commune, the one place all the artists gathered to relax, to drink on an overhanging balcony and cheer their colleagues when they came down the path to the edge of the pit, pushing wheelbarrows or carrying baskets of ashes, well-shredded parchment, or canvas. Their midden was their agora and café. The workshops themselves were off-limits to any but their occupants, lest the experience of a piece be spread and the value of the resulting coin limited. Rosemary knew that the people who lived and worked here would not have reacted as Ruth had. Coins were made to be traded. True, it was not entirely the same. Most of the artists who walked the line between destruction and creation had a second copy of their experiences locked within their heads. It kept their skill intact and allowed them to improve on their talents. It meant, of course, that the true value of a coin would not be fully known until after the death of its creator. The mere possibility of replicas kept prices artificially low. This form of double vision was seen as part of the eccentricity of the artist. Only very few had access to memory machines that did not erase as they recorded, and these were usually reserved for educational institutions. There was something slightly disreputable about such a practice when performed by a private citizen. 
it was seen as an overly mawkish form of nostalgia, tinted with greed. The slight whiff of selfishness of the covetous hung around those that transgressed this social boundary, including many artists. An unfortunate necessity, thought Rosemary. But then she was secretly sure that artists were never happy unless they felt themselves to be transgressing something. The most talented of the artists, those that came along only once or twice in a generation, disdained the double memory. They possessed but a single copy and traded it away, relying solely upon the latency of their talent for any future works. These were the most highly valued. Any who pretended to have such talent soon found their ability to create new and desirable works dwindling, and were soon reduced to creating and recreating what they had produced before. Yet even these had collectors willing to pay for the experience. Some people would collect anything. The great alluvial plains of the Waikato were once more submerged, this time with salt. The view from the Kaimai Ranges was no longer dairy farms, but deforested ridges where sheep wandered, flexible hooves skittering over steep slopes, staring with vacant eyes over misty water. A calm surface on which to boat, the layered plains buried beneath while waves rolled in green chimes overhead. On clear days when the air and the water were at their most still, shadowed remnants of drowned towns could be seen beneath, their gridded streets clogged with sand and spires reaching towards the sun. It was a popular place for diving, and Rosemary had swum there herself, clad in a sucking black suit and hearing her blood pulse, her heart beating like the ticking of a clock, a grandfather clock, with brass gongs kept free from seaweed and salt air, salt blood. There was once such a clock in her mother's house, a clock that had been navigated through the northern islands, bodies fitted carefully around it in the carriage, hauling it all the way from the old home to the new. I've always wanted a clock like that her mother had said in satisfaction. The trade concluded. And then the awkward trip home, balancing and maneuvering, the clock wrapped in blankets to keep it from blunting, from chipping, while the vertebrae of those around it stiffened and suffered. Rosemary's childhood had been one of geometries, the placement of furniture in a too-small room, the packaging of dining suites in the shed where chairs bred in dark corners and waited to be rotated into service whenever their wood came into favor. I've had enough of oak, but did you see that walnut? The constant puzzle of fitting clocks and mirrors, old gramophones and rocking chairs into vehicles where they didn't really fit, their new owners squashed around them, roping struts and awkward corners into place. Then the unwrapping and the cleaning, the smell of waxy polish and acidic brass cleaner, and the small itch of broken cobwebs in the air. They tickled Rosemary's nose until even the thought of most furniture made her want to scratch. The possibility of mice and nursery rhymes, a vivid memory. When one wet night the cat found a nest of baby mice and brought them half-dead, half-drowned into the house to dry themselves on curtains and the dark carpets under the beds, brought them in one by one and then left them to scatter, until days later scratching and skittering unearthed them from new nests. All but one, who from distant scratching and muffled squeaks, was lost in the latest clock. At least there's a bright side, said Rosemary, as the clock was left to wind down. They were mindful of toothed and grinding wheels, and what they could do to a small furry body trapped in the machinery with dangling tail and twitching whiskers. The clock could strike two at once, and no mouse would run down from it. Better to let it come out in its own time than to have to take everything out and clean it of gore gummed up in the cogs.
It's running behind as it is, her mother complained. I'd never get it going properly again. Suspicious. I'm sure it wasn't like this when we bought it. At least it's quiet now, said Rosemary of the clock. It had ridiculously high-pitched chimes, totally unsuited to the broad solidity of the casing, a half-meter wide and taller than she was. People snickered when they heard it, and Rosemary, for the first time in her life, was willing victory to a rodent. Perhaps it could damage the innards beyond repair, turn the clock into a blessedly silent shell that loomed in the corner, wafting linseed and lanolin. That bloody cat, said her mother bitterly, and the cat was banished from the house at night. There were no chimes, and no pitter-patter of small animal feet, and no surprising finds of jaws and hearts from then on. Rosemary missed none of them. A parallel library of hinges and paneling and glass. Rosemary had sometimes wondered if there was an acquisition gene, one passed from mother to daughter in the many generations of their family, a mitochondrial desire to collect and store and preserve. Bright jars on a shelf, the sharp mirror of light on wax polish, a rainbow of slipcovers, pickles and clawed feet and gold lettering on hinged spines— Each of the family librarians had their own interests, but Rosemary, the librarian of all librarians, cared for these interests only as they pertained to the coins as a group, new wings of the collection, preserving facets of human history. Rosemary valued each edition even if she didn't care overmuch for the realities behind it, and even if she wasn't interested in collecting sideboards and jamming them into every available room like some demented wood-loving magpie, she still kept a close, if unsentimental, eye on the relevant dealers of both sorts. On certain items, most often another clock, her mother was plaintive. Doesn't it mean something to you that it belonged to your great-grandmother and to me? All that family history. One day it will be yours. Doesn't it mean something? To Rosemary, it didn't matter one little bit, didn't mean anything. No matter how plaintive the appeal or how long it had been in the family, the clock was hideous. It didn't even sound like a clock, more like a demented call to the lifeboats. Her mother might love it, but Rosemary had associations of nothing but nuisance. It was a thing, and only a thing. Its presence intruded, and the endless frantic noise gave her headaches and stoked her temper. She could not shut it out. If she wanted to hear a clock, she could hear one in her own time, and better. She could not value it, and did not wish to pretend to. When you kick the bucket, I'm selling it, she said, to her mother's dismay. Then, you can leave it to my cousin if you want. But this was a sop that Rosemary's mother did not want. The clock squealed in rhythmic dismay. When you're lying on display before the funeral, that bloody thing is going in your coffin said Rosemary unsympathetically. You can listen to it for eternity. I suppose you can always sell it, said her mother. And if you put my dead body on show, I'm coming back to haunt you. There wouldn't have been space for that sort of display had either of them really wanted it. Clocks cluttered each room like disembodied souls, the beating hearts of a shadow family watching from corners, from tabletops and bookshelves. The unfortunates were thrust under the stairs, their chimes silenced, smelling of dust and dead times, but they were kept. Unused, unloved, they were still part of the collection. Nothing was thrown away. Rosemary could see the sense in this regarding the library, but not the objects inspiring it. If it was going to intrude on her everyday life, 
if she was going to be forced to experience it, she might as well enjoy it. You don't even like that one, she had pointed out. But it was a gift, said her mother, as if that was all that mattered. From someone you don't even like, said Rosemary. Someone who's dead. They won't know if you get rid of it. But I'll know, said her mother, with undiminished certainty of tone and a jaundiced eye. There was a reason the house was so cluttered. When her mother died, it was more difficult than Rosemary had expected. The disposition of a life, of all the little reminders. Clothes that would fit no one but smelled familiar. The books left half-read. It was easier with the furniture. Rosemary had long made up her mind what would happen there. She had sold some, kept only a few pieces where her taste had coincided with her mother's, and enjoyed the increased floor space, the quiet halls. The rest she had put by to take to the commune, and now she had the incentive, the opportunity, to do it. She ferried the clocks, antiques all, to the Waikato Hills, bound in blankets and silent, their gongs and chimes muffled in more layers than was really necessary. She would only recreate so much. Some sat on sideboards, some balanced in the seat of faded chairs, rocking gently. These were the pieces Rosemary truly despised. Familiarity had bred contempt, and she had been hard put not to take a chainsaw to one dark monstrosity. At least, they were the pieces without any significant intrinsic value. She helped to unload them, helped wheelbarrow the smaller pieces into an unused shed, stifled her curiosity at dust-sheeted forms seen through studio windows. The artist was friendly and known for creative destruction. They shared some lemonade, and Rosemary took the empty bottles back to the cafe for recycling. The day was hot, and she drank more as she waited. Performance art was coming back into fashion, and if Rosemary didn't care for some of the more modern pieces— well, she didn't have to experience the coins if she didn't want to. Their value would appreciate, given the reputation of the artist, and contributing to his work now helped retrieve from him the coin containing the performance of one of his chief rivals. In the distance, she thought she could almost make out a flat, outraged ringing, as if someone was belting brass with a sledgehammer. It made her smile. She no longer remembered why she hated the clocks, only that she did. Her collection— the one that mattered, was growing. She wondered what her grandchildren would think of it. Chapter 6 Taranaki She wants what? said Rosemary, disbelieving. After two relatively painless transactions, she had let her guard down. She had never imagined she would need to steel herself against a proposed trade of this magnitude. The request felt strangely counterintuitive— Rosemary had spent her adult life collecting experiences, learning to weigh and measure and discern between the fragmented moments of past lives. Like stepping into a stream, every coin derived from the present memories assumed a solid form, became, in their way, a relic of history. Were Rosemary to pull the memory of this day from herself, to impress it into a suitable form, she would embed it into a disk of Monica wood— the sharp turpentine scent reminding her of quick shock and bargaining, then it too would represent a past event. Her life was one of histories. There were times when she had traded histories with an eye to the future. Collecting the past, embalming the present, was one thing, but a cheap grab bag of moments without selection or oversight was the act of a hoarder rather than a caretaker, 
a competent librarian. If it improved her collection, Rosemary was prepared to deal in futures by trading the past. Selling her grandmother's requiem in order to obtain a moment rarer yet was an example of this. Some trades, however, were not so much a bargain. Rosemary was under no illusion. If she were to sell her memory of her daughter's birth, Ruth would not suddenly become a stranger to her. She had many years with her daughter, and those memories would not be affected. But if the loss of Ruth's birth affected Rosemary's future rapport with her daughter, then the trade might cost far more than its surface price. I have many faults, said Rosemary slowly. I don't deny that. But romantic self-delusion has never been one of them. If you're expecting me to tell you that maternal instinct will see me through, then I'm not sure I can oblige. You love your daughter, said the factor. Do I? said Rosemary. I'm not entirely sure. She sipped her tea, eyeing him over the rim of the teacup. You don't look surprised. The factor spread his hands. It's not my place to comment. Besides, I have not the pleasure of children myself. They tell you that you'll love them, said Rosemary. And I suppose you do. I did, anyway. My daughter was a sweet little baby. Then she grew up. Our relationship is not an easy one. The usual friction between mothers and daughters, you understand? Sometimes I think it's my fault, but I can't escape the knowledge that, that Ruth is not a lovable person. Some people aren't. Should the fact that I gave birth to her blind me to this? Does it? said the factor. I do wonder, said Rosemary. There was silence as they both finished their tea. You are reluctant, said the factor. I can't say I blame you. I'm used to this reaction. My client is difficult to cater to. She has not had much luck in obtaining her desires. Infertility must be a terrible burden for her, said Rosemary, more out of politeness than true sympathy. She had little of that. No one could get everything they wanted, and wallowing in despair was something she considered to be a sign of weak character. She supposed it might be slightly unethical of her to consider exploiting such a weakness, but considering such was her only alternative. If I may suggest a possible solution, said the factor, I feel you are hesitant because you believe any loss would affect a relationship with your daughter, correct? Because I believe it would affect my feelings about my daughter, said Rosemary. That's not quite the same thing. And yet your relationship would also be affected if we do not come to an agreement, said the factor. That's true, admitted Rosemary, smiling coolly. She was stung, but unwilling to show it. Of course, I might be willing to weather her displeasure. Please understand that I have had plenty of experience doing so, and if keeping her happy becomes too burdensome, she will just have to learn to live with the disappointment. There was another pause, and more tea was poured. To cover the sense of stalemate, Rosemary assumed. There is no need, the factor began carefully, for any agreement to be made before the memory is extracted. If, upon doing so, you find the results, shall we say, disagreeable, you can re-imprint and decline without prejudice. That would be acceptable, said Rosemary. Her memory recorder was waiting for her, already set up in a private room. 
Rosemary ran her fingers over the blank coins available to her. She always carried a variety of materials, matching memory to material in a way that linked sensory inputs. In the remains of what she had brought with her, however, there was no coin that fitted the experience she intended to imprint upon it. All the metals seemed too harsh, save for the coppers, and Ruth had never liked copper. The jades and gemstones were too smooth, the woods not scented enough, and none of the textiles were very durable. Not that the coin would get a lot of wear, but it was too important a thing to trust to felted surfaces and velvet-covered horn. She hesitated over the trays, wondering if she was simply stalling for time, trying to put off a job both necessary and unpleasant. She reminded herself again that she had the option to make this a temporary measure. We have a wide variety of blanks, offered the factor, sensing her distress. Do you have any made of Monica wood? said Rosemary impulsively. If it was to be a temporary hold, the material did not matter so much, but professional pride excused any hesitation. Several, I think, said the factor. I'd be pleased to put them at your disposal. The blank that Rosemary chose was a polished round sliver, shaved so thin it was translucent. Rosemary was briefly surprised by her choice. She had intended to choose something chunky with weight, but the thin blank coin reminded her of the call around Ruth's head when she had been born. It wasn't a practical choice. The coin was not one that would take much wear. But then it would only have the one owner, and Rosemary knew that if she traded the coin, the owner would be careful with it. When she had transferred the memory to the coin, Rosemary rested her cheek on the table, her face close enough to the coin to breathe in its scent, the turpentine depth of it. She let her fingers skip lightly over its surface, the memories of her childbirth interspersed when she lifted her fingers away, with the time she had spent with her daughter since she had been born. Pain, surprising at first, but an almost welcome pulsing as she began to contract, the relief in knowing that the discomfort of pregnancy was almost over, combined with the heavy beat of excitement, the thought of meeting her child for the first time. Mashing carrots and kumara, feeding them to a child who liked everything yellow but refused to eat green because green was the color of the sea. Sweating so much that her feet, which she wanted to keep bare, her skin so sensitive that anything she wore during the constant tightening annoyed her, became so wet that they had to be stuffed into slippers so she could keep her feet under her as she walked around the birthing room. This is a piano. Can you press the keys like this? This is a horsey. Can you draw the pretty horsey? This is the library. Can you see all the coins? This will all be yours to look after one day. Can you reach the top shelves yet? Deep, hard pants and tearing, the red heat between her legs and breaking her nails on the bed rails, how she'd made them turn off the lights because they were too bright, and her torn nails on the bed sheets in the moonlight. You have responsibilities. You can't just run off whenever you please. While sometimes we have to do things we don't like, it's part of being an adult, and you will be an adult one day, my girl, so may as well resign yourself to it. The final wrenching push, half loss and half relief, the wet, angry cry and the small, squashed face in her arms, glaring up at her and her laughing, the pure delight, the new worlds for both of them, even if the baby was too grumpy at her eviction to care, until the beat of her heart against the small, bloody body quieted the screams and comforted. No, you can't chew on that. You can't climb on those. 
Oh, why can't you put it back where you found it? No, you cannot have another damn horse. No, I don't think I like you either. How do you feel, said the factor when it was over. How do you feel? The other woman was writhing on a couch, stifled squeals forcing their way through gritted teeth. Her hair was wet and stringy with sweat. Thin lines of blood ran from one clenched fist, and Rosemary could see the beveled edge of a coin between pale knuckles. Iron, she noted, a deep, rough dullness that would be difficult to polish, that would rust and redden and would never bend, no matter how hard it was pressed into bone and palm and flesh. As you can see, my client is indisposed, said the factor. I can see if I can remove the coin if you would like to speak with her. Your client is a ham and a charlatan, said Rosemary, appalled, and I would not. The factor led her out. She wants to experience what she cannot herself, he said. Some women, not many, but some, have sold her their memories of labor, saving the actual final moments of the birth. If she wallows in it, I wonder if she is simply trying to make the experience more real for herself. It's nothing but a disgraceful display of self-indulgence, said Rosemary. Are you sure she is sane enough to authorize the transaction? I believe so, said the factor. There was a trace of bitterness in his tone, and then it was carefully hidden, the forehead smoothing. We have had medical advice. My client copied her memories of her instructions to me, and of her reactions and experiences with the other labors she has bought. Several psychologists reviewed them, and when experiencing her memories, they found no indication that she might not be capable. Fixated, yes, but mentally competent. It's sad, really, he continued. All the desire, all the effort, and she has had nothing but a string of labors and no baby at the end of it. She'll get no baby at the end of mine either, said Rosemary. I trust she understands this. My daughter does not belong to her. My daughter will never meet her. I want the lack of contact written into the contract, please. She will never have more of my daughter than she does now. The few minutes I spent with her before they took her away to get us both cleaned up. She will have the experience of the love you felt in those moments, said the factor. A memory that shows her the capacity that she, too, has for love. Are you hoping that will jog her back to a more normal life, said Rosemary? I would settle for being able to share her bed without weeping, said the factor. He carefully did not look at Rosemary. We're married, you see. Or were, before all this took hold of her. I'm sorry, said Rosemary, meaning it. I told her I didn't care, said the factor. That children were not everything. That what we had was enough. She doesn't trust either of us enough to believe it. Do you believe it? asked Rosemary, curious. I want to believe, said the factor. Then believe, said Rosemary. Look at me. I had a child, and look how that turned out. You're sacrificing your past for her future, said the factor. You must love her. Do I, said Rosemary. I do the best I can for her. I always will. She is my responsibility, and I have a duty to her well-being and happiness. But that is not love. My daughter, she said is not a lovable person. How do you feel? said the factor. Horses and carrots and green inedible vegetables, sleepless nights and teething and sneaking out,
of chewing on a coin of bulls and boats, the fights and the fish and the resentment, the ties and tensions and old tenderness. And in the space between feeling her daughter kick, nothing, a great white peace. I don't believe, said Rosemary, that I feel any different. She was almost disappointed. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Octavia. Octavia, thank you so much for that. That is part one. Check out next week, part two, and Ruth. What can I say? Cracking narration and, you know, just brilliant news on getting into stupefying stories. So, that is today's show. Big thank you to Juan Ochoa for the artwork. You know, that's going right through the month there. Juan, it's just fantastic. You know what I mean? And I'm looking forward to hearing the part two Octavia story. Ruth, you're a star. Don't forget... Please, please, please don't forget donations. We're running a month of monthly, you know, kind of trying to raise some funds for Starships over this week. You know, monthly donations. If you want to sign up, that's the best way, to be quite honest. It just kind of takes over, you know, it just comes out and it just looks afterward. You know, it goes in kind of monthly and it's the monthly cost that's kind of the pain in the backside. Do you know what I mean? It just like drives it down. And like I said, last time it happened, you know what I mean? The kind of... The wife wasn't too happy that it was kind of coming out the house fund, you know what I mean? So, And it's not now, but I want to make sure it doesn't, you know what I mean, in the, in the future. And it would be so nice to get some support off you. That would be fantastic. You know, it would mean a lot to us. It really would. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.